0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, murder, suicide, and violent death that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. When it comes to a violent crime, so often we want to believe in logic, that even in the thought process of a criminal lies some kind of order to what they do, who they choose to victimize, why they hurt and harm people. But sometimes there's no real rationale for a crime, and so it lingers with us. What we can't understand has always scared us. And when it comes to Marjorie Deal Armstrong, there is just so much that we still don't understand. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief... Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Marjorie Deal Armstrong, a woman who tried to hire a hitman to kill her father so she could collect her $1.8 million inheritance. But to even pay the assassin, she needed serious money. So she planned an elaborate bank robbery involving a hostage, a scavenger hunt, and a collar bomb. This week, we'll look at the aftermath of the bank robbery and how the plot started to fall apart. Then we'll follow the winding road that led to the unmasking of Marjorie as the true mastermind of the deadly scheme.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. that's Science V.S. New season out on Spotify soon.
0: On August 28, 2003, 46-year-old Brian Wells walked into the PNC Bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, but he was no ordinary customer. He leaned on a cane as he approached a teller, a cane that was actually a modified gun. And around his neck, he wore a collar bomb. His shirt almost hid it completely, except for a bulge under the fabric. He was a strange sight, made even stranger when he picked up a lollipop and popped it in his mouth. And then things got even more bizarre. Wells approached a teller passed her a note demanding a quarter million dollars and then informed her that the bulge around his neck was actually a bomb. The teller scrambled. She didn't have the authority to just open the vault on her own. So instead, she tried to make do with what was in the drawers. All she could scrounge up was $8,000. It wasn't even close to what the robber was asking for. But this didn't seem to matter to Wells. He took the cash without complaint. And then, still sucking on the lollipop, he strolled right back out of the bank. Meanwhile, 54-year-old Marjorie Deal Armstrong sat in a parked car across the street, peering through a set of binoculars. She watched through the bank window as Brian interacted with the teller. It all seemed to be going according to plan, or so she thought. She paused, then handed the binoculars over to her friend Ken Barnes, who was sitting in the driver's seat. He smiled as Wells walked out of the bank with a bag of money. Marjorie got excited. Her plan was working. She was going to get all the cash she needed to pay Barnes. Then he would kill her father so that she finally could inherit what she felt was rightfully hers, $1.8 million, an inheritance her father was currently wasting. From where Marjorie was sitting, everything was going off without a hitch. Before we continue with Marjorie's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. There are plenty of ways to get money in a hurry, but robbing a bank usually isn't the easiest. It's a big gamble. Sure, you might hit the motherlode, but it's also more than likely you'll get caught. For Marjorie, it's possible her bipolar disorder hampered her decision-making. According to researcher Liam Mason, individuals who are bipolar are often impulsive and have a propensity for risk-taking. If they see a potential reward, they're more likely than a neurotypical person to pursue it without thinking through the possible consequences. Marjorie struggled to see the long term picture. All she knew was that she wanted her inheritance now. So when she saw a way to do that, she seized it, even if there was a good chance things would end badly for her. But exaggerated self confidence was another symptom of her disorder, one that flared up with her mood swings. While Marjorie was in that state, no one could get through to her. That said, even Marjorie knew that when the cops show up, you shouldn't be around. So when she and Barnes heard sirens roaring in the distance, they took off. They knew where Wells was headed next, anyway. At this stage, Wells left PNC Bank, got into his car, and drove to McDonald's, per the written instructions given him by Marjorie and the group. For some reason, they wanted him to make a series of stops to find four keys to unlock the bomb around his neck. To this day, there's a lot of confusion about why they made Wells go on a scavenger hunt, especially after he'd already robbed the bank. He could have just driven 20 minutes in one direction and crossed the state line. It was as if Wells was meant to be caught, or worse. But Wells didn't seem to think much of it. He just followed his instructions. After all, it's possible he didn't really think the bomb would ever go off. At McDonald's, he found a note in the flower bed outside and set off for his next destination. By this time, police had been alerted to the robbery and were on the lookout for Wells. Soon enough, they identified his vehicle and swarmed it, forcing him to pull into a parking lot. There, they got him out of the driver's seat and handcuffed him. That's when Wells told them he had a bomb around his neck. At first, the police didn't believe him. Then they cut his shirt open. When they realized Wells was telling the truth that there really was a bomb, they all jumped back. The officers trained their guns on Wells and ordered him to get down on the ground. Then they retreated to a safe distance. As they waited for the bomb squad to arrive, Wells told the officers a story, that he'd been abducted by a group of black men who locked the collar bomb around his neck and then forced him to rob the bank. It's unclear why he lied about the people behind the plot, but perhaps he was afraid of what would happen if he told the truth. Unfortunately, Wells was so calm that the officers started to think the device was fake, No way could an unwilling hostage wearing a bomb act so relaxed. But then the bomb began to beep. Wells started yelling at the cops, begging them to get the bomb off his neck. But the bomb squad still hadn't arrived and the other officers didn't dare go near him for fear that it might actually explode. And then it did. The bomb squad was on the scene moments later, but it was too late. Brian Wells was dead. A part of the bomb remained around his neck though, and the squad started to inspect it for clues. Meanwhile, police searched Wells' car. On the passenger seat, they found the scavenger hunt instructions. The handwriting didn't look natural. It looked like someone had traced each letter from a stencil, which made handwriting analysis useless. Whoever had written the note had seemingly outsmarted them. That person was 59-year-old Bill Rothstein, Marjorie's ex-fiancé and co-conspirator. Marjorie and Ken Barnes had gone straight to Rothstein's house once the cops had shown up at the bank. But when news started to filter in that Wells had been caught, they decided to collect the remaining clues before the cops could find them. So, they made their way to a wooded area where clue number two was waiting. But as they approached, they noticed police officers already at the scene. Rothstein hit the brakes, paused, and then turned around and drove away. Now it was time to panic. With Wells dead and police everywhere, Marjorie and her accomplices regrouped at Rothstein's house. And there was likely a lot of commotion. The collar bomb was supposed to be fake. That had always been the plan. But clearly, something had changed. In all likelihood, Marjorie and Rothstein were the ones who decided to make the bomb live. Why they decided to use real explosives isn't clear. For Rothstein, he may have wanted to create a crime that would baffle the cops, just to prove to the world he was smarter than everyone else. But Marjorie's potential motives are even harder to understand. After all, she wanted the money, so murdering Wells before the handover didn't make much sense. But Marjorie didn't always think logically. Her thoughts were occasionally scattered and often unfocused. Sometimes she had difficulty choosing between two contradictory ideas. Sadly, we'll never know for sure what the reasoning was. All we know is that the decision was made. And it had completely backfired. The entire plot was a bust. Now Marjorie didn't have the money to pay Barnes to kill her father, and without getting rid of her dad, she would have to watch her inheritance just dwindle away. She was back to where she started, only now there was a trail of dead bodies that would point right at her. Because Brian Wells' death wasn't the only murder Marjorie orchestrated. She'd also murdered her boyfriend, Jim Roden, who was supposed to be involved in the heist as well and serve as a getaway driver. But then he began to get cold feet about taking part and threatened to go to the cops. So Marjorie took matters into her own hands. Authorities believe that sometime between August 11th and 12th, about two and a half weeks before the bank heist, she shot him. Now his body was lying in a freezer in Bill Rothstein's basement, just waiting to be discovered. Another bomb that could go off at any moment. Up next, authorities inch closer to Marjorie thanks to an unexpected double cross. Listeners, I am thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for ParCast. It's the four-year anniversary of another fantastic podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, there's no better time than right now to start listening, Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers, from the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Wardos, Ed Gein, and, coming soon, the night stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on Couples Who Kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge, and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Now back to the story. On August 28th, 2003... 54-year-old Marjorie Deal Armstrong and her co-conspirators sent 46-year-old Brian Wells to rob a bank. To coerce him, they placed a bomb around his neck, which went off, much to the authorities' surprise. It was the first time a live detonation device had ever been used in a bank robbery, and the story attracted a lot of attention. The press started calling it the pizza bomber case, since Wells had worked for a pizzeria, and the story, on its face, was baffling. But as the investigation went on, things got even stranger. The FBI went first to Wells' home, but they found absolutely nothing that tied him to the bombing. So the day after the robbery, investigators went to Mama Mia's Pizzeria, where Wells had worked, they wanted to interview his fellow delivery man, Robert Pinetti, But the interview never happened. On Sunday, August 31st, just three days after the robbery, Panetti was found dead in his apartment from an overdose. The FBI had no idea how Panetti might be involved, but they felt sure that the deaths of two pizza delivery men within three days of each other couldn't be a coincidence. So, they formed three different working theories. The first was that Wells committed the bank robbery entirely on his own. The second was that Wells and Panetti had planned the robbery together. And the third was that Wells was abducted by strangers and forced to participate in the heist against his will. This last option seemed the most viable. Despite the odd connection between Wells and Panetti, the FBI still thought there was a larger conspiracy afoot. They were convinced someone else was involved. They just had no idea who. But then, the case took another turn. At the end of September, just three weeks after the bank heist, Rothstein turned on Marjorie. He called 911 and told them that there was a dead body in his freezer. He revealed that the man was Jim Roden and that Marjorie, who was currently staying at his house, was the one responsible. Marjorie had wanted Rothstein to use a meat grinder or a wood chipper to cut up the body and get rid of it once and for all. But he hadn't. And now he'd betrayed her the eerie police rushed to Rothstein's home. There, they made their way into the basement, and sure enough, inside the freezer was the body of Jim Roden. While police searched the house, Marjorie holed up in the upstairs bedroom. She ranted and raved that the officers were trespassing. She didn't know why they were there, but she had a sinking feeling, and she wanted them gone, now. But she wasn't the owner of the home, and Rothstein had given the police express permission to search. He'd even helpfully encouraged them to arrest Marjorie while they were there, which is exactly what they did. As they handcuffed her, she loudly protested her innocence, screaming that Rothstein was the one who'd killed Rodin, that she had nothing to do with it. The officers weren't swayed. They stuffed Marjorie into the back of a cop car and drove her to the station. She could say anything she wanted, but this was the second boyfriend of hers to end up murdered. And it was going to be hard to talk her way out of that coincidence. For his part, Rothstein was intent not to make this any easier for Marjorie. He went down to police headquarters and gave them a full confession. He told them that Marjorie shot Jim Rodin and then came to him asking for help. He admitted to putting the body in his freezer and destroying the murder weapon, but claimed that he'd changed his mind about fully disposing of the body. Meanwhile, in another interrogation room, Marjorie was saying the complete opposite, that she'd come home one day to find Rodin dead, According to Marjorie, Rostein was the murderer, and the motive was jealousy. No one really bought that version of events. And now, three deaths had just occurred in the small city of Erie, all within about three weeks of each other. FBI agent Jerry Clark knew that something strange was going on. Even though the murder of Jim Roden seemed unrelated to the bombing, Clark suspected there was some connection between the two. For one thing, Rothstein's house was very close to the clearing where Wells had supposedly met his kidnappers. But despite his funny feeling, Clark couldn't pull together any evidence to back it up. So for the time being, he let the state handle the murder investigation, and he went back to focusing on the bank heist. He didn't even bother to interview Marjorie, who was fuming by this point. She was absolutely irate that Rothstein had thrown her to the wolves and she wasn't going to go down without a fight. Every chance she got, she told anyone who'd listen that Rothstein was responsible for Rodin's death. But despite the betrayal, Marjorie hadn't yet brought up his involvement in the bank heist and the death of Brian Wells. Because doing that would implicate her. Meanwhile, the Erie police were starting to think that Rothstein might be sitting on more secrets. While Marjorie was kept behind bars awaiting trial for Rodin's murder, Rothstein remained free on bail in return for his cooperation. That included letting the police do a sweep of his house— Inside, investigators found a suicide note that Rothstein appeared to have written in September, soon after the bank heist. In it, he said that he'd been considering killing himself, but then decided to call the cops instead. Strangely, he'd also included a specific disclaimer. This has nothing to do with the Wells case. The police thought this was interesting. Why bring up the death of Brian Wells at all unless it was connected? Alarm bells started ringing. Something was up with this guy, and maybe with the woman he was tied to as well. For a few months, the police grilled him and Marjorie over and over about what had happened between them and Rodin. While Marjorie ranted and raved and didn't give the authorities a thing, Rothstein had an answer for every question. When the cops thought he was still hiding something, they made him take a lie detector test, which he passed. After that, the cops were at a loss. By January of 2004, the FBI had formally cleared Rothstein of any involvement in the bank heist, even if some agents, like Jerry Clark, still had their doubts. Now the focus was entirely on Marjorie, who was facing her first preliminary hearing for murder. To the courts and the press, she insisted that Rothstein had killed Rodin. She even threatened to sue him for slander. But when she was back in jail, she took another tack. She feigned madness. Of course, Marjorie really did live with a mental illness. She didn't have to fake anything. But while she acknowledged her bipolar disorder, she seemed to dismiss its significance. She saw herself as a high-functioning individual without any behavioral issues. So she convinced herself that if she wanted the jury to think she was too mentally ill to be guilty of her crimes, she needed to act the part. One of the strangest ways she did that was to stand in front of a mirror and shave off her eyebrows for hours. She'd just keep gliding the razor over the same spot again and again and again. It was all in service of an insanity plea. But her actions might have had unintended consequences. Psychologist Harald Merkelbach says that when a person fakes a mental illness, it can lead them to actually experience the symptoms rather than just mimicking them. And when defendants feign mental illness in order to lessen their sentence, they can become so committed to the act that it starts to affect how they remember events. It's possible that Marjorie tried so hard to convince everyone else that she had been temporarily insane that she started to believe it herself. But it turned out Marjorie didn't need to go to all that trouble because on July 30th, 2004, the prosecution lost its star witness. 60-year-old Bill Rostein died from stage four lymphoma. No one could say that Marjorie had any role in his death, but here was yet another man from her life who'd met an untimely end. Without Rothstein's testimony against Marjorie, the DA knew they were in a tough spot, so they agreed to Marjorie's request for a plea deal. On January 7, 2005, she pleaded guilty but mentally ill to third-degree murder. That meant she had to serve a minimum of seven years, but assuming good behavior, she could be released even earlier. As usual, Marjorie got exactly what she wanted. But for all her ups and downs, she guarded one secret above all else. She never, ever admitted her involvement in the Pizza Bomber case. By the time she'd made her deal, the FBI investigation into the heist was beginning to peter out anyway. As they had with Rothstein, they'd ruled Marjorie out entirely, at least in any formal manner. So it looked like she and her co-conspirators would get away with it, if they could keep quiet. And that was a very big if. Up next, authorities finally piece things together, and Marjorie has no escape. Now back to the story. Two years after being turned into police by her co-conspirator, Bill Rothstein, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was sent to jail for the murder of her ex-boyfriend, Jim Roden. Marjorie's lawyers were able to get the charges against her reduced, and she was sentenced to just seven years. At the same time, the FBI's leads in the pizza bomber case were drying up. It looked like she might just get away with it. That was if she was able to stay quiet. But sitting still had never been Marjorie's style. After Rothstein died from cancer, it seems something opened up inside of her. Fury. She was vengeful and indignant, and even though she had killed Jim Roden, she believed Rothstein was the real reason she was behind bars. It's possible she wanted to tarnish his legacy. It's also possible that she didn't want her side of the story to go untold. In April 2005, Marjorie wrote a letter to authorities offering them information on the Pizza Bomber case on one condition – if they allowed her to move to a minimum security prison closer to Erie. FBI agent Jerry Clark was thrilled. He'd always suspected that Marjorie and Rothstein had known more than they were letting on. And now that Rothstein was dead, Marjorie was the best lead they had. So he signed off on the order to transfer Marjorie and scheduled an interview. He hoped that she would hold up her end of the bargain. But getting information out of Marjorie wasn't easy. Every interview went the same way. Marjorie filled the first minute by shouting obscenities. Then, once she took a breath, Agent Clark would pay her a compliment and she'd calm right down. Clark leaned right into Marjorie's narcissistic tendencies and her need for admiration. He complimented her intelligence and encouraged her hatred of Rothstein, hoping that she might finally give him some real piece of evidence. But Marjorie was incredibly careful with her words. As we discussed in the last episode, Marjorie lived with multiple personality disorders, including narcissism. Popular belief would have you believe that narcissists are oblivious to their condition. But research by Erica Carlson, Samin Vazir, and Thomas F. Oltmans found that despite the mainstream narrative about them, people with narcissistic personality disorder can actually be quite self-aware. They understand that others don't necessarily see them in a positive light. They just have different psychological mechanisms driving their behavior. It's possible that Marjorie knew that investigators were trying to manipulate her by stroking her ego, and she was only too happy to let them try. But if the research by Carlson, Vizier, and Altman's is any indication of Marjorie's state of mind, then she wasn't so easily played. Instead, she played them. She put on a smile and never let them get the better of her. She offered only shallow answers to questions and always deflected topics she didn't want to discuss. After all, she didn't want to implicate herself. Instead, she just kept pointing the finger at Rothstein without really telling the authorities anything at all. It seems her aim was just to implicate Rothstein, who was no longer around to tell the truth— Marjorie was careful never to mention Floyd Stockton, another accomplice in the heist. She likely knew that involving him in her interviews would be catastrophic for her. With all her careful consideration, Marjorie thought she had everyone wrapped around her finger. But all that changed when Geraldo Rivera came to town. Yes, that Geraldo Rivera... In the summer of 2005, the famed talk show host came to Erie, Pennsylvania to do a special on the still unsolved pizza bomber case. Other programs followed, including America's Most Wanted. The shows drummed up a lot of press, and in turn, new witnesses stepped forward. The most important was a UPS driver who claimed he had seen Marjorie and Rothstein together the day of the bombing. They had been at the Shell gas station making a call on the payphone. Authorities knew that exact phone was used to call Mama Mia's Pizzeria to place the order that summoned Brian Wells. That new lead breathed life into the stale case. The FBI went back and re-examined every piece of evidence collected, and this time it came to a new conclusion. Bill Rothstein built the bomb that was locked around Wells' neck. But Marjorie's connection to the bomb plot was still murky, so the FBI decided to look over the state police files about Jim Roden's murder, just to see if there was anything at all they'd missed. It turned out there was. Back in 2004, when Marjorie was arrested for Rodin's murder, she'd bragged to a fellow inmate that she'd killed him. And not only that, Marjorie had said she'd killed Rodin because he was going to expose the pizza bomb plot. At the time, the inmate went to the state police and shared everything she knew, and she had actual notes of her conversations with Marjorie, which she handed over. Somehow, the state police never gave the FBI this information. They'd completely dropped the ball. But finally, a year later, it was finally coming to light. The FBI took the new information and charged forward. Now that they knew Marjorie was behind the plan, they just needed to find someone who could confirm it. That person turned out to be Ken Barnes, Marjorie's erstwhile hitman. State police had been aware of Barnes and his criminal activities for years. Now that they knew he was connected to Marjorie, investigators rushed to interview him. At first, he denied any involvement in the pizza bomber case. He admitted that Marjorie had asked him to kill her dad, but claimed he'd never planned on going through with it. This was the final piece of the puzzle the FBI had been waiting for, and now they were so close to arresting Marjorie, they just needed a little more evidence. And in December of 2005, they got it. Ken Barnes made a full confession. He admitted that he was in on the bank heist and that Marjorie was the mastermind behind the whole thing. But there was one point on which he was very clear. As far as he knew, the bomb was supposed to be fake. He also insisted that Brian Wells had been involved from the start, and that it had all been thought out together. There were still plenty of questions, but eventually the FBI had enough to move forward. In July of 2007, they filed two charges against Marjorie – conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery and armed bank robbery in which death resulted. But surprisingly, they didn't charge her with the murder of Brian Wells. The reason was this – while they had enough evidence to feel confident Marjorie was responsible, they had no forensic evidence tying her to either the bank robbery or Brian Wells' death. So the prosecutors were willing to make a deal for a reduced sentence in exchange for a certain conviction. Marjorie refused to bend. Not this time. She thought she could win this one. But before things could proceed, a judge had to determine whether she was competent to stand trial. With Marjorie's history of mental illness, it was a long process. For three years, her doctors went back and forth with the courts, But finally, the judge decided Marjorie was ready to face the jury. Her trial began in October of 2010. It was a bit chaotic. Marjorie liked to talk to the crowd during recess, trying to get them on her side. She'd blurt things out during testimony, then rein it in before the judge could scold her too harshly. She seemed to know how to play the jury or at least she was trying her best. But despite all her efforts, the jury went against her. They deliberated for only a day and a half, then declared her guilty of all charges. When the verdict was read, Marjorie exploded. She turned to her lawyer and shouted that he didn't do his job properly. Then she turned to the gallery and swore to all who were watching that there would be an appeal. In February of 2011, Marjorie was sentenced to life plus 30 years, and her promised appeals never panned out. By 2015, all those options were exhausted. After that, she fell into a deep depression. She complained how unfair it was that she seemed to be the only one paying the price for this crime. Bill Rothstein was dead. Floyd Stockton was a free man. Ken Barnes was in prison, but seemed happy to be getting clean. Marjorie was the only one who felt like her life had been ripped away from her, all for a crime that she continued to insist she was innocent of. And she never got her inheritance. As she had all her life, Marjorie tried to talk her way out of her predicament. She spoke to journalists and documentarians, trying to tell her side of the story. But her version of events has never made much sense. We'll never know what Marjorie actually believed in her final years, if she had truly convinced herself she was an innocent bystander, wrongly accused, or if she knew what she had done and was just trying to manipulate her way out of prison. But eventually, she ran out of time. In April of 2017, 68-year-old Marjorie Deal armstrong passed away while serving her life sentence. She was buried in an unmarked grave, and all of her secrets went along with her. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Marjorie Deal Armstrong, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Netflix documentary Evil Genius extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes weekly. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.